Hmm. The Thriller in River City. No, no. What about the Melee in Slurpee Town? The Donnybrook in Wholesale City. Hey, 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 Dan, uh, what you working on there? Oh, man, I'm trying to come up with some new catchphrases and taglines for a series of new radio ads to promote the podcast. I think we could be a bit more creative about how we advertise Negan and the Long Ranger and thought, you know, like, why not go crazy? Why not adopt some of the hyperactive hyperbole of the wonderful world of professional wrestling? Well, I, I mean, I, I admit that I, I do like that. I teach classes on that. And frankly, I think that's a fantastic <laughs> idea. What you got so far? Well, here's the problem. I'm not really a fan of wrestling like you. So I'm really having trouble finding the right, um, you know, what's the word? Tone. Okay, okay, okay. Not to worry, my trusty trail mate. I got this. And now for our featured podcast bout on the blue mic, weighing in at an undisclosed weight. You know him as the frequent tormentor of provincial governments, a man who has never met an issue he could not opine on. It's the high priest of hyperbole, the Riverview Wrangler, a legend in his own tortured mind, Dan the Lone Ranger Let. And on the red mic, he's an academic. He's a media personality. And he's a man who's never turned down a speaking engagement. Known throughout the podcast world as the master of bombast, the Anishinaabe assassin, and spirit guide to Canadians who just want to understand treaty, it's Negon the Destroyer, Sinclair! Let's get ready to podcast! (laughs) Negon? Yeah. Um, Do I have to wear tights now? Absolutely. And before we show up at the studio, we have to smear ourselves in baby oil. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome, everybody. Uh, it is another episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger. And, and I'm back. And he's back, yes, from an undisclosed location. <laughs> <laughs> Dan. Yeah, that, that's just, we just made an agreement that uh, I would, I write columns and newsletters about my vacations, and <laughs> Negan just disappears. <laughs> I like to get some time away from internet yeah. and places to go and... And so I go throughout Manitoba. I also go a bit to the States and do some other things. But anyways, more you're, importantly, I'm back. Here yeah, I am. And you're, you're entitled uh, to your privacy, uh, and I'm entitled to give you a hard time about it. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, oh, but the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, you know, for those of you who just enjoyed the, our opening funny bit, that uh, the one, there, there's always a nugget of truth, a, a, a thread of truth that runs through, like Wonder Woman's lasso of truth that runs through everything we do, and that is that you are a bona fide wrestling nutty fan. Well, maybe less emphasis on the nutty, but just for the record, I actually do teach classes at the University of Manitoba on professional wrestling because uh, when you study Indigenous communities and young Indigenous men particularly, and, and we like to sort of classify and Indigenous men in a particular type of way in our society and oftentimes, 
we ask questions like why is it that we have these challenges these issues and so on but the biggest culture amongst you know, first nations in manitoba is professional wrestling there's really nothing that's really? more influential and so i teach classes on what does that mean what's the impact of that on young indigenous men particularly and also, if you, re if you watch the 1980s, the most fascinating appropriations of culture happen with uh, people posing to be indigenous or sometimes indigenous peoples who become heroes of cities like yep. Minnesota in the 1970s. So in the 1970s, generally, most non-indigenous peoples hate indigenous peoples, except for when you go to the wrestling matches, when they would right. all chief, uh, cheer for Chief Wahoo McDaniel. So it's this kind of weird anomaly. And I think these are important moments that... and so. Yes, there's a grain of truth. Yes, it's kind of funny that I like professionalism, but I like teaching it. Okay, so in converting it to an academic discipline, you're just trying to suck the fun out of it. Is that, <laughs> like, the, you're, like it's, like I, you know, because I mean, like I'm not, I, I refuse to be uh, one of those guys who say, oh, I never watch wrestling. I mean, I rarely watch wrestling, but I did one of the, one of the first stories I did for the Winnipeg Free Press back in, was because uh, I don't like to tell people when I started, but it was in the <laughs> '80s, in the late '80s. Hulk Hogan came to Winnipeg. It was the first time he had been to Winnipeg in a really long time. It was just on the upslope of the World Wrestling Federation before it became World Wrestling Entertainment. So it was just as you know, wrestling was go going from a previously niche successful niche form of entertainment to like one of the biggest, you know, entertainment companies in the world. So the Hulkster came and like I, so I got to go in early, you know, to the old Winnipeg arena and talk to all the guys behind the scene and they, you know, and it, it, it is like, it is true. Like, especially when you're at ringside, these guys are, and, and the women, they're tremendous athletes. Like the stuff that they do is crazy. And uh, so I didn't get to interview the Hulkster. They they thought they were gonna they were gonna let me interview him ahead of time, but in the end he wouldn't do it. But he did come out for the feature bout. And I can't remember who he was uh, wrestling. It it was and I bet some lamentably, you know, some somebody representing some uh, easily vilified visible minority. I'm sure. You know. And I bet if you look in the audience, yeah. like uh, like it was when I was growing up is the one time that my dad took me to the arena other than a Jets game was to go to wrestling and go to the wrestling matches. Also, my mother took me and my wow. family took me, my uncle took me. And, and I will say one other thing before we get into our topics for today, but uh, I was at the recent AEW All Elite Wrestling show at the uh, Bell Center downtown. And at the end of the night, uh, you know, no surprise, most of the place is Indigenous. Uh, at the end of the night, the three superstars of the show, which is Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega, and Don Callis, who are all Winnipeg guys, uh, all came out with the Jets jersey on, basically to pander nice. to the home crowd. But it was the indigenous Jets nice. jersey that the they Wasak wore, jersey. the Wasak jersey. And I think that's indicative. That shows you that there's a really interesting relationship between the indigenous community and professional wrestling that's worth thinking about. And yes, I make it a bit dull by talking about it that way. But I think it's interesting. And that's probably why I... Partly why I like it, but I also have a secret, uh, you know, affinity towards uh, just watching and yeah. bad guys, good guys, comic yeah. books kind of on screen kind it, of thing. I will say that the most interesting thing that happened to me at that uh, Hulk Hogan bout was that photographer working with me was Ken Gelati, longtime free press photographer, great guy. And uh, Kenny was like right by the corner, like right by the turnbuckles was get, trying to get like a great picture of the Hulkster doing like the, the big scissor kick 
drug, like what is that when they do the big kick up in the air? It says he used to come down with his one leg across the other. It's like the chair. leg drop. Leg yeah. drop. Okay, and he he went to go kick up, and his other foot came and smacked the end of Ken's lens oh. <laughs> and drove the camera back into his face and he had like a big black eye and stuff like this. But what was interesting was, and this is like, you know, 14,000 screaming fans, the penultimate moment, and he kicks Ken's camera and he actually stopped, like for a heartbeat, went over and put his, uh, like his hand on Ken and said, you okay? Well, he was, and, and, he was thinking he was probably more worried about a lawsuit. And, and, and Kenny said, yeah, yeah, like that. And then he went back into character. It was great. You know, it was, oh, that's nice. Of him. Yeah. Um, you know, this week, uh, it's springtime and I was and away. That me- and that means in, in Manitoba. In Manitoba, it means uh, sandbag time is actually what it usually means. Yeah. Uh, it's flood time. And uh, for those of us here on Treaty 1 territory, uh, we're inundated now with where to get sandbags, how to get sandbags, and we're r- very closely watching the situation in Fargo, North Dakota, as there the mayor Tim Mahoney has ordered 200,000 sandbags to be built over the coming week to try to save that city uh, from what it will be a fairly brutal, uh, not in the most brutal, but a fairly brutal spring thaw. Uh, what happens in this area is a couple things. One is we've deforested almost all the entirety of the, Missis- or the Red River, which the Mississippi River system flows into the Red River system. And because the Lake Winnipeg watershed is like a big funnel, it all flows into Lake Winnipeg. And so the, so you've got this deforested system. And if any of you ever you know, have a Christmas tree, you know what, it, what I mean by that. You know, think about how much water that Christmas tree drinks. And that shows you a lot about how when we deforest and we create farms, then that's flooding. And then of course, never mind the fact that we've got, you know, exponential amount of rainfall and eco- ecological situations according to climate change. So here we are now facing yet another flood and inevitably that impacts First Nations because we have a floodway here in Winnipeg that drives all the water north. Yeah. And uh, situations like at Pegwis, who has a new chief, by the way, congratulations to Stan Bird, uh, who's a brand new chief, unseated longtime chief, uh, Glenn Hudson in last week's election. Uh, but, you know, immediately enters office and boom, he's facing a flooding uh, crisis situation like most First Nations up on Lake Winnipeg on the, uh, the river systems up there. And so uh, mostly we're all just sending our wishes and love to everybody who is along the Red River. Uh, the situation's hopefully going to be not as bad as it was in previous years. And certainly for Peg was not as bad as it was last year, said to be the flood of the century. But, uh, you know, flooding is a real issue for all of us, and especially in your community where you live. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, I mean, fortunately, uh, within that far, like I'm right in the middle of the city, Riverview, and the river does get high, but there's enough uh, parkland. Uh, now, that's, uh, except when you uh, go to the St. Vitale Bridge, and then below there, the, that's all property, you know, built right up against the riverbank. I mean, they've done a ton of work. Uh, reinforcing and, and building berms and stuff like that. I think that, you know, um, over the years, uh, as, as a news event, covering flooding is like, it, it's, it's sort of my, like, and apologies to people who are, uh, you know, are suffer from floods. But I mean, in terms of the, the just the fascination, flood, the flood stories that I've covered are the most fascinating. I was in uh, Fargo for three weeks in 2009 when they almost lost the city, uh, like they did uh, years earlier in Grand Forks. And I mean, literally was out like walking across these gigantic 
uh, sandbag dikes and, and you know, they were using all these devices to shore them up. Like, and watching, like there was less than a foot of freeboard. Like, so you're walking up to the top of the sandbags, uh, sandbags, and as soon as you get up there, the water was right there. So a stiff wind would have taken the whole thing down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really, like it is, there's something about flooding that's directly connected to, um, like, the Red River Prairie, you know, culture. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it always is expressed in positive terms, but there is something about people who are born and bred here and their relationship to the river. Uh, indigenous 100%. and non-Indigenous. Yeah, 100%. You know, like it's crazy. People write poems about it. I mean, I'd say probably it's one of the most powerful images in novels and poetry of the city, whether it be Carol Shields or Katerina Vermette or... I mean, talking about their relationship to the river is so crucial. And, you know, um, one place I have spent some time is uh, New Orleans. And having seen the impacts of flooding and the break of the levees reminds me so much of how this sort of onset panic back in the famous 20... Uh, well, God, we have so many famous flood times. But yeah. the, the famous 2011 flood, 1997 flood. The 1997 one is the one that really imprints itself in your memory because... There was this uh, mass panic in the city, and, and I remember out in Selkirk, where I was growing up at the time, and uh, we we had the army, like, right there. And the army came in, moved into town, uh, we're doing yeah. hourly patrols to watch the Red River, and, and then at the end of it all, we had a charity soccer game against the army guys, and which the entire town came out, oh, so wow, it was a very interesting time period. I mean... Uh, this is the interesting time period, unfortunately, but it's also very devastating for those in Manitoba. Flooding is an interesting story uh, as a political story. Um, a, because a series of bad floods can change the fiscal fortunes of a provincial government. And uh, not a defense of everything they did wrong, but I mean, Greg Selinger got walloped by huge, uh, you know, uh, floods that were really out of traditional season. It wasn't the uh, so much the spring. He had summer flooding, which was really an unusual thing. Uh, but the most exp- like you know ninety seven was bad. But the most expensive flood ever in terms of the cost of government was uh, 2011, 2011, I think twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. Yeah, twenty eleven. Uh, was over a billion dollars in damages and and flood fighting costs. Um, I mean, it really like it makes or breaks uh, political careers. Interestingly enough, as well. Uh, at the same time as all that water is, you know, creating havoc with overland flooding, it's also, uh, and not because they enjoy the suffering that goes on, but, you know, there are people <laughs> over at Manitoba Hydro rubbing their hands together going, oh, yeah, baby, extra water in the in the uh, reservoirs, extra water in the rivers, you know. And, and it's just, it, it's just, it's one of those weird relationships that we have with nature uh, here in Manitoba that, that the years that they have overland flooding, with all that extra precipitation are the years that, you know, Manitoba Hydro does boffo. So, and you know. lo- I mean, as much as Hydro looks forward to it, I think, or, you know, not so much look forward to it. Hydro realizes the impacts and how there is always a yang to the ying in these kinds of situations. But then also uh, there is a tremendous amount of law, law firms in Manitoba that have built 
entire mm. careers, entire portfolios based on flooding of First Nations communities. Yeah. And I really witnessed that when I was uh, involved with the Kiosk Generating Station and the Bipole 3 consultations, because uh, most First Nations with their law firms were all talking about compensation from flooding and the fact that when you build these hydro projects that it inevitably involves a great deal of flooding impacts. And so, I mean, law firms as well are, uh, are a big part of... Yeah. So not only is it flooding season, but it is pre-election polling season as well. Which is a different kind of flood. but different <laughs> kind of, Yeah, there's, there's a different kind of, what is the word, effluent that's involved in a, you know. Uh, but it is, I mean, like we're, we're fast approaching the end of the spring session of the Manitoba legislature. Um, I think if, uh, if Premier Heather Stephenson was going to call an election early, she would have done it right after the budget. Uh, so I, uh, as much, I think I've said this before, I do not make hard and firm predictions, but I will say this, that, that she will wait till October. She'll, she'll drop the writ in September for an election that will culminate, uh, October the 3rd. And, um, so, but that means too, that there's a lot of attention on the polling that we do with pro research and, uh, you know, quick, uh, capsulized version of the polling, NDP good. Uh, conservatives really not so good, and uh, especially in Winnipeg, and liberals threatening to drop off the face of the earth, which is really kind of unusual. And the conservatives uh, haven't even picked candidates for a whole bunch of seats. That's interesting, mostly for the fact that they've had a massive amount of people who, long-standing members of the party that have left the party, or that aren't running again. Yep. And maybe they haven't left the party, but they're certainly not running for election. And then the NDP, of course, kind of have this control of Winnipeg. And, and, and yeah, the Liberals, I mean, where were they? But uh, they were there uh, during a sort of weird anomaly moment in Manitoba electoral politics where you see a debate. Well, how many months out, right? Six months out of an election, yeah. you saw a pre-election debate. It was hosted by the Association of Manitoba Municipalities. So you actually got to see the three leaders on stage debating issues. I mean, when does that happen? Um, well, no, it's very unusual. I mean, uh, the one thing for sure, though, is that, um, and I think that if I was a progressive conservative, I would be perturbed that the AMM decided to host a election-style debate between the three leaders because... The Association of Manitoba Municipalities, is a, that is a progressive conservative forum. And uh, that's not to say that when the NDP are in power, they ignore them. But the AMM and uh, the uh, local government leaders that are opinion leaders within that group, they are, they're just, the affinity is with the progressive conservatives. So, you know, usually when the PC, the PC uh, with a PC government, you would get PC, uh, uh, a cavalcade, a cavalcade of PC ministers rolling through doing speeches, the premier would do a keynote. This time she had to share the stage. I, I found that significant. Um, there were, you know, our coverage of that though, um, you know, we got a chance to, you know, to throw questions at uh, all three leaders and all three leaders attempted to say that our polling results were, oh, they, they don't think about our polling results. They, you know, they just, the only, the, the quote is, oft heard quote is, the only poll that matters is the one on election day, which is true. I actually think Wab Canoe said that, I think. Yeah. In some it, v- yeah. Version of that. It is true. And it's also bullcrap. Are you going to, like, just as an aside, are you going to beat me? I only found out last week 
that he beeps me when I say, I'm going to say the word that I said because I know he's going to beat me. When I say I was so shocked. He said, but then he said, he said, I just think it's really funny when I beep you. I'll be honest. (laughs) No, I want to say that that (laughs) what an amazing job you're doing producing overall, but beeping Dan is the absolute winner of you're all, you're got a permanent job in my eyes. I thought that I would start with you know <laughs> swears and then as time goes on sneak it into just other things that we don't want people to hear Dan saying. <laughs> I well, I just on top of that. Speaking of uh, replacing uh, <laughs> political parties are now replacing their name. You know, uh, it, it, the Saskatchewan Liberals have voted to change their party name. So have I believe the Alberta Liberals. They don't uh, want to be liberals. They anymore. don't want to be liberals anymore. And in the context of what you just described, in that the Liberal Party in Manitoba seems to be, you know, has been on life support maybe for a while. But I, yeah. you know, I would say that uh, one thing that the Liberals in Manitoba is they've always been very scrappy party. They've been working yeah. very hard, sticking around. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why the Liberals should have faded out a long time ago. Um, but you know, John Gerard and uh, Dougal Lamont now just fighting a good fight. Uh, but, you know, most, it's interesting that on the prairies that most of the liberal parties are changing their names, getting rid of the li- term liberal. Li- liberal is the the Voldemort. In the uh, West, for uh, sure. Yeah. Actually, I think I use that, uh, I think I use that a lot, the Voldemort of X. You know, the name that shall not be mentioned. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. just to be with the times, I'm yeah. thinking uh, we're talking about beeping. I mean, maybe we should beep out the word liberal to be more favorable to our Western uh, counterparts here. <laughs> No, no You're gonna, hey, have you got your finger on the beeping button? liberals? <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Dan, Dan, you know, you're going to get us an R rating on our show. The interesting thing, I'm though, hoping, is yeah. going to be which of those two words gets beeped. <laughs> There'd be a double beep. Well, I look forward to the day that we have a Manitoba liberal on our show. Yeah. And uh, we will uh, ask that question. Why are liberal parties across the West getting rid of their name, changing their name, and, uh, you know, what does that look like? And it relates a lot to, I think, I think this is a pivotal election for the Liberals as much as it is for the Conservatives and for the uh, NDP. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- what will the Liberals do after this? Uh, they've had Dougal Lamont for, as a leader for quite a while now. And what kind of impact does that have? What does it look like in a Manitoba with or without a Liberal Party? And going forward in the future, I mean, uh, maybe pollings matter. Maybe they don't. I mean, certainly with U.S. elections, they seem to not matter. Yeah. And we in the media care a lot about it. I'm not sure everybody else cares about them as much. Uh, yeah. I mean, like to tell you the truth, polls are still relatively accurate, way more than they're inaccurate. And and I think in those instances where the polls have been considered inaccurate, what you're really talking about is uh, a much more fluid electorate, like where there are huge changes in, uh, you know, uh, huge changes in voter sentiment very close to the election. People deciding to vote at the last moment, that kind of thing. But anyways. Anyways, anyways. is right. So uh, we're uh, very fortunate today. Our feature interview uh, is going to be with uh, somebody I've known for a really long time in a number of different contexts. And uh, someone with lots of respect throughout the province. Long time, long standing, a progressive conservative member, cabinet member, uh, Minister of Status of Women, Rochelle Squires, is going to join us. Minister of Families, yes. And Minister of Families yeah. as well. I think has multiple portfolios. Multiple we'll find portfolios, out, yeah. yeah. So she's been good enough to come in and talk to us about a recent announcement she made and about uh, her political future and the future, political future of her uh, government and party. 
And yes, so let's now go and talk to Rochelle Squires. So uh, I'm kind of fortunate enough that I've been doing this long enough that I've known some people in politics for a very, very long time. And this person I've known uh, not only in politics, but also in journalism, uh, both as a fellow journalist uh, for a period of time and then a communications press secretary type for a period of time before she uh, truly went to the dark side and became an elected <laughs> official. But it, it also means that like when you get to know somebody before they're a politician, you do sort of understand where they're coming from and you know, and quite frankly, you know that they're sincere about what they're doing because Rochelle Squires certainly saw enough of politics from, the, from other perspectives that if she wasn't sincere about doing it, she probably would have learned enough to stay the heck away. So, but anyways, Rochelle, thank you so much for, for doing the podcast with us today. Well, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be here and really greatly admire the work of uh, that both of you do. And so pleased to be a part of today's show. Well, I admire your work. Dan, not so much. No. But I'm not so sure about Dan. But, no. but, you know, I have a question for you just right to start off because, you know, when I was doing some research for the interview today, uh, I was just sort of blown away by how many titles you have. You know, not only do you represent uh, the, legisl- uh, the the constituency, sorry, of Riel, um, which I'm sure is a whole job unto itself, but then you also have, you're the minister responsible for accessibility, minister responsible for francophone affairs, and minister responsible for the status of women, and also minister of families. So which is your favorite title? Oh, God. And... <laughs> It's like picking your children, right? That's like, right. Which is the one that That's like an unfair question because it's like asking a mother, which of your uh, children do you like the best? I really, I enjoy all aspects of, of my work. And uh-huh. I was really um, fortunate to get elected at a time when not only was I, um, uh, you know, now a newly elected MLA, I was also uh, asked to serve in cabinet. And while I certainly didn't feel like I had the qualifications back then, having been on the job for all of six days, um, the answer that I had offered was uh, a resounding yes. And so I've been very fortunate to be in cabinet now for seven years and really truly do um, enjoy representing my community and all that that entails. And then my portfolio right now is something that is just really near and dear to my heart. Um, You know, when we talk about disabilities, every um, family is touched in some way, shape or form by disabilities. And then uh, families, of course, uh, for me, it's very full circle. My family uh, history and my background certainly did touch upon some of the systems and processes that are um, in my portfolio now. And uh, that, that's been a real honor of a lifetime to, to be part of that full circle. And status of women, um, I, I, I would say arguably the reason I got into politics was to really make a difference for uh, women and girls. And uh, so the work that I get to do in that portfolio is just a huge honor. So I can't pick. Sorry to give you a politician's I, I, I answer. I groaned into the microphone and they're like, oh, no, we're going to hear about it. It's like someone yeah. talking about how proud they are of all their all their different parts to the family. But, I mean, I, I, I totally uh, respect that. Um, I think that, you know, probably the biggest impact uh, or one of the biggest portfolios because we've had, uh, you know, we've had on the show before Kevin Chief, and Kevin Chief, of course, had been the Minister of Families and, and things along that line. I mean, that's such a big portfolio onto itself, and especially in Manitoba with the history of, of child welfare and the issue around supporting families. And then of course that goes into so many other issues like the middle class, economy, finance, 
uh, and then just public safety. The Minister of Families portfolio has got to be one of the hardest portfolios mm-hmm. in the whole government, you know, and I think it's often unsung as well. I would agree that it's definitely a challenging portfolio and um, it's 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 challenging and yet it's also really rewarding and I'm very fortunate to be coming into the portfolio at this time in history where not only um, are we halting many systems that were um, perhaps rooted in, in colonization and that perpetuated um, generational breakdowns. Uh, I'm at in the portfolio at a time where we're able to stop some of that and walk back from some processes that were put in place years ago and now move forward with change that we hope will make a meaningful difference, keeping families together and really helping uh, children achieve better destinies than um, perhaps they were served in the past. I mean, we could talk about the issue of child welfare all day, but I mean, Manitoba has really been at the forefront of so much change involving Bill C-92 and the control of First Nations of their child welfare systems and all the other ins and outs. And also some of the hiccups that happen along the way or the challenges involving funding and so on. Um, what do you think is the, the lasting impact? Uh, and I think we'll get into other things, but the lasting impact of the past few years on child welfare for not just First Nations, but First Nations are, of course, the most impacted, you know, 90% of the child welfare system is First Nations. One of the first things that I read after being appointed the Minister of Families was a 2018 Globe and Mail article uh, with that was quoting the Honourable uh, Murray Sinclair. And in that article... I might know that guy. You might know. He says yes. something, except for when he grounds you. Then when he grounds you, then there's no reconciliation. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, his words in at that time when he had concluded his work with the TRC was that um, the 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 monster that was created in the residential school system has taken up a new home and that home is the child welfare system the foster system and then he went on to say in this Globe and Mail article that if the child welfare system that existed today was in place when he was a boy he would have been apprehended and it takes no imagination at all to to just think about the trajectory of uh, his life and all the lives that he's impacted had he been apprehended as a young boy and not been given the opportunity to live with family and to stay in his community. And so I read that and I reflected on that and I thought, that is so true. We live, we live in a province with historically high um, rates of child apprehension. We have a, a system that needs to be transformed from the bottom up. And so um, at the same time as, I, as he was concluding uh, his work with the TRC, uh, we saw the federal government bring in Bill C-92 and how that impacts the child welfare system. And in Manitoba, we, um, we're very, very proud that we were uh, able to work with the first Indigenous community, the first Indigenous governing body to draw down jurisdiction and assume repatriation of their children both on reserve and off reserve and that is at Pegwas. And so really um, pleased to have been a part of that and to sign that historical agreement to see uh, Pegwas First Nation lead the way not just in Manitoba but in all of Canada for how to do child welfare better. I did the training sessions on uh, training the community because the community was quite suspicious of C92. Right. Uh, and so I did all the community uh, training and also the training of child welfare workers to understand that this is a good bill, uh, this is a good opportunity. I think there's been some uh, bumps along the way in terms of figuring jurisdiction and funding and so on. So lots to work out yet, mm-hmm. but 
But I think that that's real. I think you're right. I mean, Manitoba has been at the forefront of so many issues, but particularly the implementation of C92, one of the first to be able to do that. So and I'm just going to add, like as you guys were talking about uh, the family's portfolio and, and sort of within the, uh, the constellation of uh, cabinet opportunities, uh, families is certainly considered uh, to be the most challenging. And, and I'll even say it like I think a lot of people think it's a graveyard uh, polit- like for a politician uh, because as much as you and you do, like I, I think you really do an amazing job of highlighting all the positive steps. It's just like it really is just one brush fire to another brush fire. So I'll, I'll set the stage here for the one of the latest brush fires that the government set Rochelle in to fight. Um, so we spent a better part of a little more than two weeks uh, concerned about the fact that the uh, the forensic nursing program at Health Sciences, the bottom had dropped right out of it. The nurses who were working there for many of their own reasons, but they resigned. Uh, and so uh, it the program was essentially could not provide medical support and forensic support for collecting evidence to uh, women who were the victims of sexual assault. And, you know, I mean, it's it's an, like apart from the politics of it, it's just a horrible story uh, because you're taking among the most vulnerable category of vulnerable communities and, you know, admitting that you don't have help. So what happens is like after two weeks of pretty heavy duty heat on the government, Rochelle comes in uh, with an announcement, uh, and I, I won't uh, steal the details from you because I want you to go into it, but it was really like, uh, it was a bit of a solve uh, to the, uh, to, you know, to the burn that came with the original story. And so I'm interested, I want to hear the details of the, the $1.3 million for community-based uh, support, but also maybe explain to me the origin of that, you know, was that something you were working on before the bottom dropped out of the Health Sciences Center program. Did you guys expedite the announcement? Because obviously, you know, like, to, so tell me how it all came together. Mm-hmm. So before I start to talk about the sexual um, assault crisis response, I would be remiss if I didn't say a hearty and grateful thank you to everybody who works in this space. I can't imagine mm-hmm. how hard it is to be a nurse working in this space, seeing people at their most traumatized. And um, so everybody uh, deserves um, our, our, you know, absolute gratitude. And then also to say um, how much I appreciate the courage of the survivors that have come forward to receive services through a sexual assault nurse examination program. 921 um, survivors went through the doors of the sexual assault nurse examination program at HSC last year. 921. So that number really, it just really gives me chills to think that uh, we have that many survivors who need support. And um, I would say that we're we're not even, uh, in, you know, capturing all the survivors. We know that there's a lot who don't go to mm-hmm. um, to a to a. Uh, a place for for um, examination and to start on their healing and so we had set up this program a year a, a little over a year ago myself and Minister Gordon where we wanted to formalize the program at HSC and um, we committed uh, the dollars to ensure that the nurses were not just casual but f- full-time 
And um, at that time, I don't think we'd even had the numbers quantified at that mm-hmm. point. And we didn't anticipate the demand being 921 for that year. And all the time that we were setting up that program to be run in hospital, I'd been hearing from community and other survivors that have said being in a hospital is certainly not always a trauma-informed place. It certainly isn't always a person-centered approach either. And survivors have often expressed um, discomfort and barriers to going to hospital. And so I always did believe that there needed to be a corollary program that would be run in community. Similar to third-party reporting, um, a few years ago, Mm -hmm. thanks to the good work of journalists, we saw how many um, uh, sexual assault reports were discredited or not investigated upon by law enforcement. And we knew that there was this massive problem with people going forward to law enforcement to share their testimony and to start proceedings. And so the solution to that was third-party reporting, and we started that in Manitoba four years ago. And it's been rather successful in being um, a trauma-informed, person-centered approach, where if you've been if you've been sexually assaulted and you want to, you need to tell your story to somebody. You need to get on the path to journey and healing. Going to the police not really an option for some. Going to hospital, again, not really an option for some. But clinic is is the key here. So not only do they, they've been doing third-party reporting for us for four years now and helping uh, collect the testimony from those who aren't ready to go to law enforcement. And it's it's stored in a way that is um, is viable if, if uh, there's a case that move, moves forward through um, uh, report to law enforcement and, and such. The testimonies can hold up in court and all that. Now we have uh, just partnered with them once again. Really extremely grateful for that partnership with Clinic and Ganeganechuk that are going to uh, do this program in community for us. And so we'll have a mobile um, uh, unit available to go to um, the the Ganeganechuk site and then also at clinic. And it's definitely more trauma-informed. It is open for any um, anybody who's experienced this violation, um, women, gender diverse uh, individuals. Um, and so we think that it is really um, a response mm-hmm. to an urgent need that this community has asked for. Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> particularly um, the mobile uh, uh design or, or approach. I, I just, I mean, and I, I don't claim to be an expert at all in, in this kind of provision of social service or medical service, but there's something about that that just smacked of like a triumph of common sense um, that, um, yeah, like it's, because I think that, I think that there, there are noble intentions in the hospital-based program, but, you know, as you said, like uh, hospitals are you know, overlit, sterile, you know, uh, bureaucratic institutions, not a criticism of the great people who work in healthcare, but, you know, they are what they are. And, uh, you know, where there's a lot of people with clipboards taking down information, you know, and, and I, I think it, yeah, it might seem to be incongruous. So I really, I saw that and I went, wow, that is like really smart. In your mind, do you and Minister Gordon have an idea of what may have happened on the other end of the program? Because I'm assuming, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, with some 
relish, I'm sure, if I'm wrong, is uh, that this community, the community-based programs, that that's not enough to meet the need uh, based on the explosion in demand for this kind of service. So what happened to the hospital program as far as you know? And, and what, like, what can we do to, so that that's part of the solution? Because obviously that needs to yeah. be part of it, right? It certainly does need to be a part of the solution. And I mean, the demand itself was really uh, quite unexpected and overwhelming. And so I really do see this as being um, a, a two-part initiative where the hospital, they're 24-7 already. And so, and they also have other support staff, um, uh, doctors Mm -hmm. and nurses who can deal with other traumas because we know sometimes survivors are coming in and they've got multiple traumas that need to be dealt with. And um, there's definitely a a fit for um, the hospital uh, setting. And so getting that set up and stabilized, but definitely supporting uh, mm. corollary community run program is is the the best of both worlds and also with the mobile aspect going and meeting people where they're at because mm. I can't think of anything more traumatic than showing up at the wrong place and saying I just need help I yeah. really need help and being told well you got to get in a cab and go here and we can't see you here and and so we're really just trying to figure out a solution so we can get round the clock coverage. Mm. Clinic in phase uh, in, in subsequent phases will be uh, looking to broaden their hours and um, uh, really really just looking to meet people where they're at and provide that service and, and the hospital program is definitely yeah. uh, vital in this in this ecosystem. Do, do you think that this hospital program and what you're trying to do with that and you know with plans already afoot to augment with the community options, did, did this is this just collateral damage to the broader issue of healthcare staffing, or was there like have, have you guys come up with any indication that there was something about that program in particular um, that that you know led to the the nurses not want you know because it was only the casual nurses mm-hmm. they didn't want to do their rotation through there. If we figured out what that is, is that or is that are we now wading into the you know, the big, you know, because there just aren't enough nurses to go around right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think if you look at what we've done with the health human resources initiative and really trying to ensure that we're recruiting and retaining as many healthcare professionals as possible, but it really is uh, a conundrum. And uh, I know that our, our minister of health and our premier, uh, they've been out frequently. And I know our minister of immigration was recently in the Philippines recruiting like trying to bring back um bring back bring healthcare professionals but you can go anywhere in this province and see massive recruitment efforts underway i was just in saskatchewan a few weeks ago my 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 baba had passed away and so my family and i went for the funeral and we're driving through yorkton saskatchewan and there's this huge billboard that is talking about um the incentives that they're the Saskatchewan government is offering for nurses. I think other jurisdictions, every jurisdiction is coming up with something. So it really does speak to the larger health human resources initiative. And um, I think where our government landed was all that to say, we just can't fail survivors. And mm-hmm. let's just move forward in ways in which we can meet their immediate needs while we're working on some of the larger issues. First of all, you know, I, I 
I think one of the greatest things that I heard about this $1.3 million announcement is that you're partnering with Gani Ganichik because, I mean, cards on the table, I've worked lots with Gani Ganichik. Fam- my family has ceremonies in the building. Uh, Leslie Spillett is someone I deeply admire and respect. Saw her yesterday, in fact. Um, so, like, the, the partnering with that just seems such a smart move because Gani Ganichik has networks that the government doesn't have, and frankly when you are an individual who's been assaulted, sexual, physical, otherwise, uh, as an Indigenous person with an Indigenous-informed organization or Indigenous-led organization, it's a game-changer. And and I think that we see that particularly with the number of uh, neighbourhood organizations, the Mama Bear Clan, the Bear Clan, so on. The success in the, in the big, greatest success is that they're Indigenous-run, often women-run organizations, Indigenous-female-run organizations. And so as a result, they're bringing a competency that I'm sure you uh, and, you know, I, I, I want to say a big miigwech to you for being a leader on this issue because you yourself are a survivor of sexual assault. You've been very open about that, talking about that publicly. And undoubtedly, when you're in that trauma, that you need the most competency, you need the most uh, somebody who's understanding of you, what you've gone through. And, and so that's a real... Uh, I think that's the best part of that announcement, in my opinion, anyways. And uh, particularly in the context of Linda Beardy and and the tremendous epidemic of violence against Indigenous women. But it seems to me at the same time, there's, there's like sort of this reversal in the past two years or three years of uh, your government in that uh, there has been this turn towards community-run organizations, whereas perhaps, uh, I mean, uh, most notably 2019, the Neighborhoods Alive program was cut which really gutted the North End in uh, mostly Indigenous organizations that really were put into emergency situations. And it was under your uh, the previous premier that you were uh, in that government as well. But it seems like the past three years, uh, this government has turned back towards community-run organizations, neighborhood organizations, has doubled down almost. I'm thinking about Heather Stephenson's announcement about committing to poverty or committing money to poverty. You're talking now about $1.3 million with partnering with Ghani Ganichik. Do you see that there's sort of uh, this turn towards community-based organizations, partnering with them to deal with some of the major crises, but maybe it might be also the pandemic, because the mm-hmm. pandemic has made everything really, really worse. And, and when you talked about that number of sexual assaults, I mean, that is inevitably impacted by the pandemic, because people were in those situations for such a di- long period of time. And and we saw, I wrote a lot about this, that family violence really exponentially increased. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think that government has really recognized that um, we can just go so much farther to serve the communities that we're um, elected to serve if we partner with with community itself. And uh, nowhere is that more evident than in my files. And I'm really excited about that because the friendships and the connections that I've made in community has really led to the opening of more solutions. Um, and I don't believe if if we didn't, if my department hadn't had those relationships already with clinic, with Gunnaganachuk, I don't know if we would have been able to make this all come together in the way that it did. And, and other initiatives. Um, and it started uh, in, in, um, in the Status of Women Secretariat specifically a few years ago when we realized that we needed to modernize our, our shelter system. Um, the pandemic taught us so many lessons. And when we were white-knuckling it through a pandemic, really hoping and just 
you know, throwing stuff at the wall, making sure that we had the services in place for people who needed them the most. Because during the pandemic, think about it, we're telling people stay, stay at home and safe at home and we're all in this together. But really we weren't because everybody had a different home to go to. And some people had a home that could be compared to as, uh, as something that would be like a life raft. And other people were, um, were flailing about without that type of, uh, of mm-hmm. um, security. And so uh, I, I think that that was really, really brought to bear with um, people who were unsheltered and were seeking the services of um, whether it be Main Street Project or other shelters in the in the province, and then in our um, particularly in our domestic violence shelters, and uh, th- knowing that we needed to have these supports there because certain people would be uh, they're being told stay at home, home's dangerous where do you go? What do you do? So fortunately, we made it through uh, the pandemic and the worst of the pandemic. And our shelters were adequately um, able to provide the supports and make sure that that uh, it, they were there. Um, and we wanted to recognize the, the work that um, that went into that. So we've increased the wages for people, anybody working in shelter. We needed to modernize those wages because we need to uh, say thank you. And then we need to rebuild that sector to a certain extent because, as you can imagine, a lot of people left that sector. Mm-hmm. So we've got a micro-credential program at, uh, through Red River and the government. We're, we, we will pay for people to take this micro-credential program so that you're qualified to work in shelter. And then we up the funding. We've almost doubled the funding for for some of our shelters and our women's resource centers who are on the front lines of, of domestic violence on a regular basis. And then um, just from there, it, it, it snowballed and working with good folks at Ganaganachek, when they came to me and shared with me their plan for Velma's House, 24-7 safe space, low barrier for women uh, who need it the most when they need it the most. And um, uh, I was able to uh, receive a presentation from Lastly and Doty and, and realize uh, that we really need this, this service available in, in Winnipeg. And so very pleased just a few weeks ago to partner with them on, on that initiative and give them $1.5 million in operating costs so that they can offer those services that will help women um, and uh, gender diverse people receive uh, not only the safety in the moment that they need it the most, but also uh, services on an ongoing basis. Meeting a friendly person, developing that relationship. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I don't keep mean to push the issue really, but uh, I mean, so many of those initiatives you described, I mean, amazing game changer initiatives that you're talking about. I mean, I, I work with the My Team program at Ganiganichik, which is children coming out of the child welfare system. We give them safe places to go, positive ways to, many of them are 16, 17 years old. First time they're in apartments, they are trying to just get a good mentor, someone that can support them and see that they don't get caught up. And, you know, when you're 16, 17 have an apartment, you can imagine all the challenges that probably come up yeah. with them. Um, but one of the challenges that Ghani Ganichik and many other organizations in uh, particularly the center of Winnipeg uh, faced was when the Neighborhood Lives program was cut, then they were really in a dire situation. Then the pandemic was on top of that. And so uh, if it wasn't for volunteers uh, during the pandemic and, and the Bumble Bear Clan, Bear Clan 204, uh, parts of parts of um, eventually the, the uh, 219 Inks, uh, 219 Disraeli, um, you know, 
it really wouldn't have been as bad otherwise. So would you say that the government's learned a little bit from that situation? Or is it that the pandemic really exponentially created a situation where urgently you had to partner? I think it's both, twofold. I mean, I think we would have learned that lesson uh, eventually and ultimately because if you think about some of the services that um, that community offers um, and parallel services that the government offers, offers would be underutilized. Why? Because there's not the trust. There's not the relationships. And no, nowhere uh, is it more demonstrated than with the Canada-Manitoba housing benefit that is allocated for children or youth exiting care. It's a $250 a month. Well, we, bu- we bumped it up to $350, but it was a $250 monthly housing benefit. No strings attached. If you are a kid, you've aged out of care, and you're renting, uh, here's $250 in shelter top-up. Underutilized. And then if we look at the uh, tuition program that we have, the partnerships with many universities where children exiting the child welfare system don't have to pay tuition. Underutilized. Why is that? Because if I've opened up shop and said here's here's some money here's some programs Uh, i'm not going to get the buy-in from the community as much as you will or other community organizations just because the trust is there the history is there and the partnership is there and so it's also also sometimes people don't want to go to school when they're feeling unsafe or or when they don't have connection with their family i mean i mean the trauma is real and the trauma is ongoing and and so you know, that's also got to be part of a plan, too, that the trauma, I mean, it's good to get off. Well, those are fantastic initiatives offering incentives to go to university, but you can't learn if you feel unsafe or if you yeah. feel traumatized, right? And Yeah, there's a larger piece that, that still needs to be addressed with helping kids age out of care effectively and set up in a way that they can achieve success, which might, you know, it'll look different for every every child aging out of care. I've got five kids. Their path to adulthood was very different um, for each and every circumstance. And that's the same with our with all the children that are aging out of care. But the options um, are there, and we need to find a way to bridge them into discovering the pathway to their, um, their, their potential and their destiny. So uh, potential and destiny, I mean, you're, you're doing rebuilding, re-extending, um, as, uh, you know, Nigan said, um, and the lifespan of any government. I mean, you do, you do the, you make the best decisions you can, then you learn from those decisions and you move on. Right now, uh, you could be looking at your last six months in, in a portfolio. And uh, I'm not saying that it, that any of this is a is a inevitable byproduct of that, but um, I'm just wondering where, it, as much as you can. So the 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 new programs, the new things you're doing now, the reacquainting yourselves with the value of community organizations, these things. I mean, there, there must be some. You must be struggling a bit with some people to rebuild trust from a government that took a very different approach over its first three, three and a half years. And uh, and I think Manitobans have kind of responded to that. And I'd be the first to admit that that I think there's a lot of people in the province who that first three and a half years, that was their experience with this government. And whatever they're doing now uh, is eas- maybe too easily dismissed. I, you know, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of typecasting that's being done. In terms of the the way Manitobans think about your government, 
How do you think we got to where we are now, where you guys are, um, and I know the most important, we were just talking about this in the opening, the most important poll is on election day. But the pre-election polls are not flattering. So how did we get here? Um, you know, uh, to, that's a huge you know, question, Dad. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, why is the sky blue? Yeah, did I, yeah, did I, t- did I tell you that that in the podcast universe, like, uh, we're, we we don't it doesn't cost us any money to go three hours. <laughs> so just you be you we'll, now, just you know, get it. Yeah, so we would need three hours to talk about um, how we got here, but we really are at a point where society has changed mm-hmm. uh, and is changing. Uh, very rapidly. I would say society is changing uh, quicker than ever in in uh, the last 20, 30 years. We're pivoting on issues. There's greater awareness on so many issues. And so um, I, I really think that that's part of the the pivoting that uh, as you've as you've referred to it in, in regards to government um, response to community. Um, but so I think government is is moving along and and really doing what good government does and that it reflects the the wishes and the desires of of community and uh, really listening to people and understanding what it is that they want. And as you know, we do have a new premier. um, And one of the things that she had said when she was uh, campaigning for the job is that she wanted to hear from people and she wanted to respond to what people had uh, had requested of her as if she were to be leader. And her her key word was always collaborative. And she's really exemplified that. We have taken a listening approach. She's taken a listening approach. And I can say wholeheartedly and with sincere honesty that when I bring issues to her, uh, the the response is always, uh, if you feel, and if I've made my case, if I've done my job as a cabinet minister to represent the facts, represent the need, and represent the solution, I can move forward with implementing it um, with relatively uh, little uh, input from her. And that's the way she has uh, structured her cabinet. And I'm really fortunate to be uh, be in that cabinet mm-hmm. where, you know, we're, we were talking about the emergency response uh, initiative. I presented the program uh, challenges and a potential solution. And she was certainly on board with it. She said it is absolutely unacceptable that uh, survivors are not getting the services that they mm-hmm. need when they've got the courage to move forward and ask for help and the response is not adequate, we need to address that. And she um, certainly endorsed any pathway that mm-hmm. I brought forward um, that was, was reasonable and, uh, and su- supported. She, she moved forward and, and said, go ahead. So I, I promise I'm not trying to get you to speak ill of the politically deceased, but um, I did mention the issue of typecasting. And the the attitude that people have, the mindset that people have about this government, and I'll pick two of the issues that you mentioned. I mean, one one is collaboration uh, and listening, and uh, the other one is uh, is perhaps this idea of responding to need, uh, individual need, as is identified by uh, ministers of the crown. I mean, uh, I don't. My word's not yours, but I don't really think that that was part of the, the, the brand and reputation that this government earned over its first three years. I think that's about the, the 
fairest and most polite way that I can put it, that government developed a reputation for more unilateral action. It was trying to do some very ambitious things and that, you know, required it to move quickly. But, you know, the the previous premier uh, was, I don't think collaboration, certainly outside of government, was maybe not seen as his strong suit. Um, do, do you think, like, uh, you know, you work closely with Minister Gordon, you're working closely with the premier. Do you think that's part of the, the challenge your government has right now is to get people to think differently and maybe look at what you're doing now and not maybe what you did back then? Not you personally, but what the government did back then? I, uh, there's, there's multiple ways that I could answer that. But first of all, <laughs> let me just say how, um, how fortunate both of you are. You're, you're uh, well-respected writers. And, and I think that that is an incredibly admirable job and one that I uh, wish to go back to at some point because as a writer you get to reflect on things and you get to view things from a different point of view. So I don't know if I would be the best judge um, to say what what people thought and what happened and, and where we are and how we got to where we mm-hmm. are today because I'm in the I'm in the weeds. I'm I'm moving forward, just trying to deliver solutions in any way that I possibly can. And certainly, uh, there will be a time in my life where I will do a deep uh, reflection on my time in government and the contributions uh, that I had uh, was fortunate enough to make. But in terms of looking at it from that macro perspective, uh, certainly you have a much better perspective. You you know, being in the media, you you might have your finger on the pulse a little bit more uh, than I do outside of my constituencies, whether it be the constituencies I serve as a minister of families and in my constituency of real. I have always, uh, you know, been uh, mostly concerned with hearing from my uh, folks that I, that right. I live with and the, that I represent in my neighborhood and of course the people in in my in my uh ministry that i that i serve and uh i just i just want to say that that quote there that you about you know that you guys are probably more have your finger on the pulse and have i'm gonna take that and put it on my twitter profile now okay yeah because it's kind of like 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 you know like it's the endorsements on the back of a, cool in a of a book and of a book color yeah well i mean i have to invite people in to say yeah. anything nice about me at yeah. all <laughs> So no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, I but I, I do think you like, but it, it's also, and I appreciate your kind words. You know, we do, we are freed of the burden of having of responsibility for decisions. Like we may have ideas on what need to be done, but honestly, week to week, we barely even remember some of the ideas that we float. Where, but with you guys, like it's, um, you know, budgets, uh, the uh, the public accounts. Uh, Auditor General, journalists, you know, I mean, everything you do and say is documented in, and I think, you know, you and I have, we've talked, you know, privately, that I actually have tremendous respect for anybody who would seek elected office, because I think it's a horrible job. Uh, You know, so I really, like, I know the the general public has a, a lot of uh, pre, you know, uh, destined ideas about what, who, who politicians are and what they do. But, like, I know a lot of good people and smart people who are in politics, and, and some of them are lucky enough to govern. And it, it is where you get to see uh, the, the true metal. Uh, we're in the cheap seats. Uh, chucking bricks, <laughs> but, you know. But, you know, I yeah. will say, 
mean, I, by the way, I thought that was a great answer. And I think oh, it's hard you. when you get hard questions like that. I think that's it's a real skill to be able to think, you know, it is true. You are, I, I don't know if in the weeds, the right way. like you're at the front lines of so many issues and it's hard to see uh, the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest or whatever that phrase is. But when you're so close to something, it is hard to sort of go, okay, what were the first three years like? What were the last three years like? Or or something along that lines. But I think you did part, partly answer that a little bit by talking about uh, the ways in which you're acting as minister now that might be a little bit different for a few, a few years ago. Uh, you know, one of the greatest refreshing things and that I really feel empowered and, and excited about when I work in this industry, you know, I never planned to be in media. I've, you know, I'm a writer, uh, not a great one at that sometimes, you know. And, and then and then I, you know, when I worked in politics, I was oftentimes, I was an activist really, right? So so I, when you're an activist, you're you're coming up with solutions that sometimes are, very ambitious and sometimes very big macro ideas versus getting into some of the more specific parts. But, you know, when we came on, we were discussing about systemic racism and, and I, you know, we talked a little bit about the situation involving Linda Beardy, which we are all lesser than having lost uh, this person in our community, which we all have uh, are, uh, are lesser than. And that of course the epidemic of violence with indigenous women and, and as a minister of uh, women in the province, undoubtedly this is a, your portfolio and dealing with the epidemic of violence that uh, and we were talking like I don't have to argue systemic racism exists with you and that is such that is so refreshing uh, because I think when people are from all different political walks of life I think there are some people in our province and inter, you know across the world who think that systemic racism isn't a real thing that we all just have to pick up our bootstraps and work hard enough and that somehow we'll all be able to achieve whatever we want. But there are systems in place that ensure that uh, Linda Beardy wasn't, didn't have the same opportunities as everybody else. And that particularly uh, the situation that resulted in the end of her life was systemic. It was, came from a law and policy and, and practice uh, the, what everyday Canadians live and breathe. And that doesn't, that's not a condemnation. That's a call to action. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think you, um, your role is or maybe this government's role is i mean we are heading into an election so i think this will be somewhat of an issue that during the election of the 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 epidemic of violence with indigenous women and missing missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people uh the family's calling for an independent inquiry outside of the police and i think what they're asking for and what i wrote about was they're looking for history they're talking about what was the flooding in Lake St. Martin First Nation? What was the impacts of child welfare? Like, they're not just talking about what happened that day, although I think there's lots of questions still. Mm-hmm. What do you think the role of this government or the Ministry of, of Women is on the issue of murder, missing, indigenous women and girls, calls for justice, for example? I mean, um, what do you think is, is the next step? Well, how do we move forward as a community mm-hmm. um, in this very dire time? Yeah, certainly uh, want to start by expressing deepest condolences to the family and the loved ones and and really um, echoing your your um, statements in that, you know, what happened to Linda was absolutely heartbreaking. And um, I, I really do respect the family's desire to find some answers and hope that there's some solace in those answers. What what led to the circumstances of that day? What systems and processes uh, created the circumstance that would put her where she was at, um, at, at the time of her death? And those are, those are very appropriate questions that collectively, 
as a society and as a government, we do need to ask and we need to find answers. And of course, we've touched on some of those things already in our conversation today, uh, looking at, at child welfare reform. And one of the things that I, I believe is really, really important, and I have a piece of uh, legislation before the House for consideration right now, that would mean if you are a parent and you're um, needing to, uh, and you've got some challenges and you've got the child welfare system involved in your, in your um, your family and you may need uh, respite or you may need some support to be uh, uh, able to receive those supports and receive that respite without a severing of your parental rights is really where we need to land and historically the system hasn't been like that I've talked to many mums uh, mums and dads who've been afraid to say I need help in parenting and who among us, uh, who are parents, haven't needed to get some help? And yet there's people that live in fear of asking for that help in, in their day-to-day -day lives, whether it be addressing the poverty that they're living in or uh, some you know, mental health issues or other uh, impacts such as uh, systemic racism that they haven't dealt with. Um, and yet they can't they, they feel like they can't move forward and ask for help because of fear of retribution, fear of losing their children. So that's something that we really need to take a look at. We also collectively as a society and as a government, we need to do more to ensure that, um, that we're ending gender-based violence. So two concrete actions that our government has taken in the last few months is we did sign on to the National um, Action Plan for Ending Gender-Based Violence. Uh, Minister Marcy Ian had uh, proposed this, um, this action plan and Manitoba was one of the first to sign on to that. We signed on with another agreement and got money for 24-7 crisis line at um, clinic to ensure that when you need help and you pick up the phone, there's somebody on the other end to help mm -hmm. you. So those are a few things. And then uh, just recently, formalizing our, um, our request once again of community, asking community to help us in government coordinate the efforts and the implementation of all the calls for justice in the MMIWG report. We know that government alone cannot do this work. Um, we do have a whole of government approach to it, but that alone is not enough. And so really, really pleased to be working with Mama Wichita and under the leadership of uh, matriarch, uh, matriarchal governing body uh, with Sandra Delaron, they are going to be working at um, helping us implement some of those calls for justice. One of the, the calls for justice, or actually five calls for justice were um, uh, responded to in the setting up of that emergency response, um, the sexual assault emergency response. When we had introduced and passed Claire's Law, that responds specifically to two calls for justice. But there's a whole uh, long list, as you're very well aware of, of uh, calls for justice. and. Um, I'm really excited to be working with community once again to ensure that we um, we become laser focused and move forward on on uh, implementation. I was only kidding about going three hours. I mean, we could. <laughs> uh, We'd like to. I mean, yeah, I, I've learned it's, a lot. That's okay. Adam, order dinner in. We're staying. <laughs> we're staying for the long haul. Rochelle, uh, we really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I, I won't pretend that. Even as charming as we are, uh, you know, the whole idea of this kind of an interview is probably, you know, working more without a net in an, you know, than a scrum or a sit-down interview. So I uh, appreciate the fact that you've done it. 
uh, please tell the premier how much fun you had because uh, we're trying to get her to come on. And uh, no, I mean, I think it's really important that, um, you know, we get different perspectives. And Nagan and I were, were both super excited when you said you'd do this because uh, you've got a lot to say. And, uh, you know, and, and this is your forum but to come and say it. I, you know, I mean, so. I also say, I add to that uh, one thing I've always re- really deeply admired about you is that uh, never been afraid to listen, you know, and whether we've been at a dinner or whether um, I think my father said that you had a visit one time or and that, you know, that I, I think that the, the art of listening is something that oftentimes uh, is not encouraged or rewarded in government. And so uh, I secretly think this is because, you know, when you get women in charge, women mm-hmm. listen so much more. Better. <laughs> that, I don't mean to be stereotypical, but I, but I think that, you know, I think when you get women, uh, oftentimes women are uh, thinking broad picture. They're also thinking about families. And, and it's not that men don't do that. I just think that oftentimes women in leadership, particularly in the Indigenous community, when we, the most successful initiatives and, and organizations in the city are really Indigenous female run. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's important. And so, um, but I also think that I see many of those, many of those uh, features in you. And, and I just want to say, uh, I really appreciate that you came on the podcast and spent some time with us. And even though we, uh, we didn't get too many jokes in today. We talked uh, about a lot of serious stuff. No, we talked a lot of serious stuff, but I think we have a part two with Rochelle because we promised that she would get to ask questions and we haven't mm-hmm. ever yes, do that's that right. yet. We'll I, turn yeah. the tables for next time and I'll, okay. I'll dust off my, my old journalistic handbook and uh, I'll ask you guys some questions. I'm yeah. scared for the answers myself. No, but it, it's also like if this goes, because we've, we've been very fortunate. We've had like a, a lot of uh, really strong and interesting women on the podcast, even some of co-hosted and it's not unusual to get feedback from people saying yeah you know you guys are okay but like you could give the podcast to like Rochelle and Jen Zarati and then uh, the, Julia they, Simone Julia Simone, Simone and they wouldn't even miss us so <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Big Miigwech thanks for coming on well thank you both for having me on and uh, talking about some of these really important topics and uh, it's just really been a pleasure and uh, I think that it, my my parting words of wisdom is I th- I think everybody who has worked as a politician should uh, start off as a journalist because that's where we really learn to, to mm. listen. And those skills that I honed as a journalist, especially running up, Dan always got the good stories and I was always trailing behind with with uh, You were know, hanging scraps. out in our office in the ledge because <laughs> trying it was... To sco- trying to steal his <laughs> scoop, you know. But you learn to listen and yeah. sometimes even eavesdrop. And those are really critical skills as uh, in, in life, in anything that, that uh, a person may do. But uh, many of the best lessons I learned were uh, back in Crecom where my journalism instructor said, if you can string a sentence together, you will never be out of work. And so far, fingers crossed, those words have been uh, very true in Indeed. my life. Indeed. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks.